0: Welcome to the Aquest Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds,
1: and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Aquest Podcast. My name is Danny Lawler. I'm the MD of Aquest and your host for this episode. My usual co host, Shannon Eastman, unfortunately isn't available for this one. Uh, and she's going to be raging because it's a good one. We've a tremendous conversation uh, for this podcast, which you're going to catch in just a moment. But if you're following the Protect Accent campaign, do check it out because you're going to see some reskinning and rebranding for them and some new marketing content, all with the fingerprints of Shannon all over it at Teacher Branding. So take that. Take a, a moment to check that out. Now, a little bit of background to this episode of the Equest Podcast. In the Irish financial services industry, we have a number of stakeholders. So for example, from the industry perspective, we have the service providers, we have the advisory firms, we have also, of course, the regulator, we have the politicians, we have the Department of Finance. But probably the key stakeholder in all of this, the one that we're all out to try and serve and protect, are the end investors. And whilst the industry, as well as served with an industry association and directors, and the regulator's a very strong voice, very hard and very infrequently that you hear, hear from the investor because the investors don't have an association they are gathered and collected in that kind of way. So I've always been keen to see if we couldn't get our hands on somebody who could talk to us about the investor's perspective of the world because as I said ultimately that's the, the one that we're out to serve and to try and protect but we very rarely and, and probably most of us will never in our career sit down face to face with one of these end investors. So for this episode and for a mini-series we're going to do, delighted to be joined by Bob Quinn, who is an independent financial advisor and runs an investment, uh, sorry, financial advisory practice out of County Kildare. Bob has tons of experience having those conversations with our end investors, understanding what it is that their objectives are and helping them to go on a savings and an investment path that's going to get them where they want to be. So for this episode, as I said, we're going to have a few episodes with Bob because there's absolutely tons of content to get with, get through with them, really understanding the investor's perspective of the world. And that'll, I think, help us as investment funds industry do what we do. But for this episode, what I really wanted to understand was how Bob does what he does. So how does he engage with his clients? What is his client base? When he goes about doing suitability assessments, how does that work? What kind Questions does he ask? What is it that he's looking to know? And then, when it comes to putting together a portfolio, what are the key elements in that portfolio? What's in, what's out? We even have time to talk about whether investing in an Australian gold mine is a good idea. I'm afraid Bob doesn't think it is. Spoiler alert. So, with that, let's get on with the podcast. A million thanks to Bob for joining us. As I said, we've had a great conversation for this one, and there are more to come. If you're new to the Equest podcast, do hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast provider and platform you use, so that you'll be notified whenever a new podcast drops. And as we get into the autumn season, there's going to be quite a few. So keep up to date with all our content. Subscribe to the podcast, and let's get on with the show. So, hello, Bob Quinn, and welcome to the Equest Podcast. This is your first appearance of what I think will be several. Great to have you,
0: Danny. Thanks for having me along. I appreciate it.
1: I have a lot of questions for you, so many that I think we're not going to cover it in just one episode. Hence, I I think we'll have you back several times. Yeah, very good. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Bob. Tell us who
0: you are and what you do. Who am I? I am a financial planner. I run a company called Money Advisors, and I'm based down in Nace in the lovely county Kildare. And I set up the business, it will be 10 years, uh, on December 21st, and I've been running it as as a... Uh, I suppose, a financial advisory firm to individuals, uh, typically women, uh, who were aged 50-ish. And uh, that's who I reach out to and advise on an ongoing basis. From a personal perspective, I've got two kids. My young fella started primary school only last uh, Friday, and he has a little sister as well. So we have our hands full in that regard, too. You are a busy man. Busy, (laughs) yeah, yeah, busy. Uh, My wife works full-time as well, so... uh, we tend to, like an awful lot of people out there, we are juggling a lot of demands in a COVID world between childcare and school drop-offs and all that type of stuff.
1: But somewhere in amongst all of that, you find the time to meet with and guide investors on their journey through making the money from out of the mattress and finding somewhere good to put it that's going to give them a good return and, and hit their, their savings objectives.
0: Yeah, well... Y- So the the word you just used there is absolutely of critical importance what we do, objectives. The first thing we need to do with a new client is establish just exactly what their goals and objectives are because financial plans cannot be executed unless we know what we're trying to actually achieve, unless we know what we're trying to plan for. So goals and objectives are of critical importance in establishing those clearly from the start.
1: And I want to touch on that now in a moment. Um, But uh, because what I'm really interested in, in in this episode, at least Bob, is to understand how you do what you do, Mm. interact with the clients. Because although we have a a large investment funds industry and financial services industry here in Ireland, very, very few of us actually come face to face with the investors that we're there to serve. We're all Mm.
0: servitors
1: of the funds and and what have you. But but very few of us do what, what you do. So that's why I'm really interested to see and talk to you about What happens in your world in practice? Because as we try to do our best for investors, Mm. hard to do that if you have never actually met an investor and you're trying to guess what it is that occupies their mind. Yeah,
0: yeah, of course.
1: No, your your business model, you're not a tied agent, you're independent, is that
0: right? Yeah, yeah. We're a fee-only financial planning firm. Uh, When it comes along to investment advice, whether it's investments uh, that you're making uh, uh, as part of a pension structure, planning for your retirement, or if it's uh, money that you, as you said, have sitting under the mattress and you want to do something with it, we charge charge our clients um, fees. We do not take commissions uh, from investment uh, funds or, or insurance companies. Just because... The sense here is if you're not paying for us, then you are the commodity. So to keep everybody uh, honest, if you like, and motivated, is, uh, that the best way uh, 10 years into it or close to 10 years into it that I've structured the business is by providing a level of transparency where there's no second guessing on who's getting paid and what. So uh, that, that, is, that is of critical importance in, in the structure of the money advisors.
1: And is it important to your clients? Do they seek you out because they know you're independent, or, or is it something that is kind of not at the top of their list of requirements it, it, for an the advisor?
0: There's two answers to that question. Answer number one is an awful lot of the business uh, that that's an awful lot of the clients that I advise, is actually from existing client referrals because very few people sit down and Google. Uh, independent fee-only financial planning firm in NACE, for instance. So we are the type of uh, a business that you don't know you want us until you actually are dealing with us. So the client referral is, is where the vast majority of my business comes from already. But then we've seen over the last few years in particular, there are much more uh, uh, there are stronger demands being made by individual investors seeking out someone who isn't tied to, to a bank or an insurance company, seeking out someone who is entirely independent. And, um, you know, I'm really kind of uh, hopeful for the future of, of the business just because of the way things have ramped up in that, in, in that uh, regard uh, of, of looking for independent advisors, as the case is.
1: But certainly, in a model where I know who's getting paid what, uh, it makes it a lot easier to understand where the conflicts of interest are. And I remember, as a regulator, hearing about zero fee ETFs, and on you know, at first thought, you think, oh gosh, that sounds like a great deal for investors—it's zero fee. But then, just yeah. better for a moment, you think, well, if it's zero fee, then how are they making money? And then, of course, of course, not in for the goodness. Of their health so then you got to really unpack the product and understand who's doing what where and how they make a piece and how is the investor paying for this if they're not actually paying for it so likewise with the model of yours if you know up front where the is going then it makes it much easier to understand where-
0: yeah, but even danny on that you mentioned got you. Disclo- uh, you know disclosures of conflicts and that type of stuff as well and that's something that really needs to be explored probably in a podcast by itself because Conflicts of interest are, are, are interesting. Uh, you know, every single year we do our CPD and there's an ethics uh, webinar or whatever it might be. But the bottom line is, if you are getting paid by a third party, you can't adequately represent the investor. That's very much as, as far as I'm concerned. So if you claim to be uh, your, your client's advocate, if you like, and you're advocating for what they want and what they need, then you have to be getting paid solely from them. And that, that's kind of a red line issue for me. But unfortunately, the way the industry is structured in Ireland at this point in time, the client's best interests aren't necessarily represented. And these conflicts of interest um, aren't adequately dis, uh, disclosed because, well, if everybody is doing it, then there's no conflict. You know that kind of way?
1: Yeah, well, it's an industry, and this comes up all the time. I had it this week on, um, we were looking at a, an AIFMD review letter issued by the European Securities and Markets Authority, ESMA. Different yeah. text, but the same thing. It was about conflicts of interest. And I, I keep reminding people, the financial services industry is an agency business. It is inherently full of conflicts of interest because everybody, uh, well, nearly everybody, is... Um, is you know, you're know you managing money on behalf of somebody else and you have an opportunity often to profit at their expense. So there's always conflicts of interest. Absolutely. It's very hard, probably impossible to eliminate them. So you have to identify, monitor, manage, uh, eliminate if you can, but otherwise mitigate. So so being aware of them and, and still acting in your client's best interest is the important thing. But tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about who your client base is. You mentioned 50 plus ladies uh, in the greater Calder area that's a very specific client base
0: it is yeah but i've i've come to this uh, uh niche if you like over the last few years just because my own interests are kind of aligned with uh, life events that are associated with um within the first instance uh, women of that particular age i have good working relationships I, i'm not entirely sure how i describe it but i work very well with, uh, with this particular type of client. I understand their their needs and, and interests and requirements. So um, it's a bit of a no-brainer for me because they're at a tipping point in life whereby they're looking to uh, get themselves set up for retirement. They want to ensure that their families have a level of security uh, should anything happen to them. And there's lots of potential life events, whether it could be elderly parents uh, um, requiring care or, or passing away. You've got potentially kids of a certain age as well that might be going off to college or whatever it is. So this particular client has a huge amount of demands being placed on them just given where they are in life. And it's the most complicated point in life. And this is where me as a financial planner, can really, really make a difference in somebody 's life by a few a few subtle changes or, or considerable changes can actually redefine and realign where that person 's life is going so that 's a great
1: point that 's a great point, Bob, because again as, a, as an industry as a financial services industry it 's all of our jobs to do our best for the end investors, but yeah um, and that could be you know, the way that you give legal, legal advice, it could be the amount of fees that you charge on a fund, it could be the decisions yeah. that you make where you go for A instead of B, or how you do the valuations. It could be very net technical points, but how you do it can have an impact ultimately on the end results that the investor gets. But where yeah. a lot of people are very far removed from seeing the whites of the eyes of the persons whose money it is and who... For whom it makes a difference whether you get that extra few percent of return or not, because that might be the difference between affording the college fees or, you know, the the nature of the pension that you're able to draw down when that time comes. Uh, But you're right at the forefront of that. So you can see what the actual impact is of good decisions versus uh, lesser decisions.
0: And that's absolutely it because look, if it's a thing, a lot of uh, the clients that I deal with, they haven't actually formally engaged a financial planner before. Yeah, they've been in and out of banks and, and brokerages and insurance companies over the years and they've bought a bit here and bought a bit there. It's all been kind of unconnected and uncoordinated. So it comes a point where you can either continue with an uncoordinated approach to managing your finances where you can actually then engage someone who you can use as a sounding board, if you like, who can connect the dots and who can coach and mentor you in building your finances in such a way that, as I mentioned earlier, on, your goals and objectives, uh, you have a more reasonable chance of hitting those uh, targets at some point in the future than taking this haphazard approach to managing your finances. So it may even be a case that you don't need to uh, get an additional return you just need to reposition your finances in such a way that they're, they, they're being organized in such a way that they're supporting your goals and objectives.
1: So with objectives, something you mentioned there a few times, I, yeah. I'm pretty interested in how that piece works. So very recently the the regulator at the central bank issued a letter to industry about really directed at MIFID firms about suitability assessment. So one of the mm. features of the industry of, of how we help clients is to, this piece where you when you are introduced to a client you sit down you you understand what their objectives are what the position is in life what their risk appetite is mm. and what is the suitable product to our investment strategy to direct them to and that's a very key piece in terms of protecting them and making sure they're in products that match their place at their stage of life and, and their objectives now in that letter of course the regulator had identified plenty of issues and failings that they found when they Spoke to firms about how they did these suitability assessments. Mm-hmm. Seem to be a big reliance on kind of check the box approach, without really understanding, probably understanding the importance of the suitability assessment, and therefore not giving it the attention and and care and love that it yeah. deserves. So, talk to me about suitability assessments in practice. You're sat down in front of somebody. How does how does that happen? What, what questions do you ask? What are you looking for?
0: Well, starting from the beginning, just want to change, uh, I suppose, even the the terms we use here, because suitability is, as far as I'm concerned, an incredibly broad term. And we saw Tom Perez, who was the U.S. Secretary of Labor under Obama's uh, tenure, brought in uh, this kind of uh, um, clause called acting in the client's best interest. And if we talk about best interests as opposed to suitability, it's a game changer again. So when I meet an investor for the first time, and we're trying to tease out and get, a, get that sense of clarity in relation to their, their stated goals and objectives, typically we're looking at three things before we look at an investment proposition. And that is the investment time horizon. You know, when exactly will we be calling on this, this uh, money that we're, we're nestling away uh, for a point in the future? What required return do we need to meet that future stated objective? And then what kind of capacity for loss do we have as well? Because in its strictest sense, from a regulator's perspective, we have the ESMA risk rating scale of one to seven. And an awful lot of uh, the the, um, companies that are out there using rules of thumb, it will ask you to fill in one of their risk profiles, risk questionnaires, and suddenly you come back as a three or four or five of seven or whatever that number might be. And ta-da, here we go. We have an out-of-the-box solution. You can go into this particular um, uh, portfolio and that should that should actually deal with your your investment uh, criteria. And yeah, that fund is technically suitable, but it's not necessarily what's in the client's best interest. So again, when we look at the client's finances in the broader uh, spectrum. And this isn't measured by a statement of suitability issued by, uh, to the client necessarily, but we do a lot of heavy lifting at the initial financial planning stage to really get under the bonus as to what's going on with the client's finances in the first instance. But there's also, there's also a whole area of psychology with the client as well. Some people have unnecessarily complicated financial uh, matters that need to almost be unpeeled if you like, or, or unpacked, I guess. And if we can get things back down to basics, we can then look at the composition of funds acting in the client's best interest. So, you know, it's a, it's a long drawn out process, but bear in mind if we're working towards a stated position of a future goal or objective that if we can do all this heavy unpacking at the start, it's really easy to exec- execute a financial plan at that point.
1: But I guess the opposite is true. Then, is it, it's, if you didn't know these important matters in a person's, and I could be very personal. Well, personal in the sense, you know, in, in the sense of attitudes to risk, and you know, yeah. their time horizons and their needs and, and that kind of stuff. But without that, you can't really do a, a best interests for the client or suitability assessment.
0: Not at all. And and I I would be quite critical of how we currently do it right now, because as I said, fill in this risk questionnaire. Oh, you're a four of seven. So therefore you go into this particular portfolio and that's it. It doesn't even necessarily give much uh, insight into what the client's balance sheet is, the asset base, because if your investors in a personal capacity, you know, over there, uh, uh, forget about your kind of pension, like nothing Your finances cannot operate in a silo type of environment. It can't be transactional. I have a pot of money here. I need to invest it. Oh, now I have another pot of money. I need to invest this, you know, totally isolated from the other things that you've gone on with your finances. But we still, as advisors, claiming to represent clients' interests, we're still, as an industry, as a profession, thinking transactionally, when we need to operate holistically.
1: I'm making a note of robo-advisors, uh, Bob, because I can feel that being another topic in another podcast. And yeah, yeah. this, you know, how does an algorithm pick up on you know, the, the body language that you might uh, detect when somebody clams up over their attitude to risk or whatever. Anyway,
0: mm.
1: make a note of that. But so once you've done this process, you've, you, you've, you've set your objectives and you have this understanding, as an independent financial advisor, then how do you go about constructing a portfolio? You presumably have a, a free hand in terms of where you look for, uh, let's say it's in investment funds or, or, or how the money is going to be managed. So how do you narrow that down to something that's useful and in the best interest of the, the person in front of you?
0: Well, so in, in the first instance, yeah, we can construct any type of portfolio under the sun, but we don't. And let me just try to expand on that point. Um, the vast majority of clients that I um, advise uh, have a similar background. They're a similar stage in life, uh, similar goals and objectives, albeit there are obviously uh, nuances, if you like, uh, from one investor to the other. But one thing uh, that, that is uh, part of the investment strategy in-house in the business is there are a couple of things that must feature in a client's portfolio. And that is global diversification will always trump investing in single securities or uh, single assets. Uh, um, We also look at the impact of fees and charges on on the client's um, uh, investment as well, because if we can set up a portfolio where the fees and charges are Let's use the term reasonable as opposed to cheap. That reasonable fees and charges versus excessive fees and charges in an active environment always trumps going down the actively managed route. And there's all this evidence that suggests that an active fund manager, while he or she might be able to compete and excel on a short-term basis, long-term typically the opposite is very much the case. So when looking at portfolios, we have portfolios constructed, which are globally diversified, um, reasonably uh, priced, if you like, and then um, they are buy and hold strategies as well. So this idea that we're trying to outguess the market and outplay the markets, we believe that the market is constructed, as a, you know, such a well-oiled machine that we're not trying to outsmart the markets. We're trying to buy a piece of the market, a large piece of the markets, and let capitalism work away in the background for the next thirty years on your pension or whatever it might be.
1: Well, we have value for money as one of our topics, and active passive probably feeds into all of that for a later episode. So I won't pick you I won't pick too deep on that one. Yeah. Um but, but certainly, when it comes to putting the portfolio together, then, are you talking about are they, firstly, are they structured as pensions or pension-related vehicles? And then secondly, is the underlyings then, are they direct investments in securities? Or are they investments in funds? or what, how, does, yeah. how does all that get put together?
0: So they're typically investments in mutual funds um, and a few of the portfolios that we offer to clients have literally 12,000 securities within the mutual fund uh, um, portfolio that that's structured. So it's, it is a very definition of global diversification. Uh, you're, you're buying the planets, uh, whether it's um, emerging markets and the developed uh, uh, world, if you like, and everything in between, if you like. So it, it must always be uh, globally diversified. This idea, what we see with a lot of investors coming to us is they have, I don't know what it is, maybe it's an Irish investor thing. We love property. We love apartments down in Tullow, uh, Section 23 type of stuff. We love houses in as rental properties. But after we get into us, that initial conversation, we're talking about stresses and anxieties in relation to money. And what a lot of investors will share with me is their investment strategy to date was cobbled together without necessarily any guiding principles on on what an investment philosophy looks like. And by the time you take the estate agent and the lender and the insurance company and the solicitor and the tenant and the RTB and, 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 there's a huge amount of parties involved in property investment, for instance. And it's also then uh, an individual security. So, you know, if the flat roof of that investment property you own in turn your falls in in the middle of winter, you're then dealing with an insurance company and a building contractor and, 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 the list goes on. So what we try to do every possible occasion is we try to present an investment proposition which is globally diversified, which has a custodian bank, I suppose, uh, um, offering a level of security there uh, for the client, that the client knows where their money is sitting. And it's not in a convoluted, you know, fund, which has cash and equities and bonds and this, that, the other, being actively managed. It's something which is a buy and hold, long-term buy and hold investment strategy. And the client knows exactly what they're buying into. The client knows exactly what the fees are. The client knows exactly who has who's acting as custodian of their money and how they can get access to it if they need it a short term. A lot of this, though, for the, the, the woman who's 50-ish, a lot of the times, most times, it's wrapped up within a pension structure, providing, obviously, there's, a, there's a, a income there which is, uh, uh, which is subject to uh, income tax because there's no point in doing something Uh, investing long-term for when you intend retiring uh, outside of a pensions contract, because at the end of the day, the tax relief attached to pension schemes is still, at this point in time, very good and should be used if it's a thing the money and the fund you're trying to build is for your later years. And do you find it difficult,
1: uh, Bob, to talk people out of their semi-D rental property in Terenure and into something that might serve the better.
0: Not anymore. Um, a few years ago, I suppose, when property prices were looking like they were ramping up again, um, it, it was a much more difficult conversation to have. And part of the challenge I have as an investment advisor is if clients come to me looking for their investments to date to be rubber stamped, to get a, a pat on the back saying, look, Danny, great job. You have these six apartments in, in Tullow or whatever, um, I, I suppose I approach it from the perspective that I tell you what you need to hear as opposed to what you'd like to hear, because there's a lot at stake. If we get it wrong, it can go horribly wrong. So having that honest, open conversation with the client um, has been something that I've brought to the business from day one. Over the last year or two, though, you see that the property market in Ireland is is much Uh, it's much more uncertain today, right down to um, if you do decide to sell your property and given your tenants uh, notice of of your intention to quit the uh, tenancy, for instance, in a COVID world, that has obviously been up We don't know where the property market is going to go in the future. All your capital is illiquid because it's tied up in bricks and mortar. And if you remove the rental income from the property because your tenants moved out, you now have a whole lot of capital tied up in bricks and mortar, which isn't actually providing any income to you whatsoever. So the conversation I'm having, just to answer your question, in relation to property as an investment proposition has become a lot easier to redirect clients' capital into the likes of a globally diversified mutual funds portfolio, as opposed to their apartments that around the country.
1: Uh, I have two questions left before we wrap up this episode of uh, the Quest podcast, Bob. Uh, the first yeah. one is, a lot of the regulatory regime around investing and protecting investors, uh, or c- certainly quite a bit of it, revolves around disclosure to investors and transparency. Yeah. And I guess for it to be effective, and my experience as a regulator was that you... Very hard, although you are protecting investors, very hard to actually get to investors to and get their feedback and get their input as stakeholders into consultations or whatever. Mm. A large part of how they are protected assumes that they have a level of interest and engagement in the process of their investing. Is that Mm. a fair assessment? Like when you deal with people and you're bringing out spreadsheets or you're presenting numbers and charts, do eyes glaze over? are they interested enough to to kind of put the energy involved uh, put the energy in to understand what's being presented to them or is that kind of a waste of time they just feel like this is it. i'm a 50 year old librarian or whatever i am this yeah. is the side of my my uh, remit just tell me what to do bob and i where to start. Well, Danny, I'd
0: like to say that, first of all, when clients come to me, um, we have riveting conversations about pensions. It's edge off your seat type of stuff, let me tell you. No, it's, uh, I'd answer your question along these lines. It depends on who the client has engaged, who the investor has engaged to advise them. Because if, again, you're thinking transactionally and you rock up to you know, your local broker, the broker is there going, right, I will sell you this pension or this particular investment. We're not going to be focused on a relationship in the short, medium or long term. And that's the type of thing where the client asks a couple of questions. The broker says, look, we're going to do this and you'll be fine and put your money in here and off you go and call me in a few years time if you want to do something else. If it's a thing you're engaging uh, someone like me and when my clients come in, we talk about we talk about death, family, uh, what you've done to date, hopes, ambitions. We talk about every aspect of your life. It's part of building that relationship. So clients get engaged with me just because the conversation is much more broad. and Because the initial conversation we have is teeing up a long-term relationship. So again, you do the transactional bit, you're not overly engaged. If you know you're going to see your man, Bob, in six months' time, and then again six months after that, and that's going to be it for the next few years, clients tend to want to know more, want to be more engaged, uh, take a much greater sense of involvement and ownership of their finances. Because what I do in this business, I would probably describe myself more as a coach or a mentor. It's let me help you understand what you're doing with your money and how it's actually going to impact on your life. So disclosures and suitability and all that type of stuff from a regulatory perspective, I have to, um, I have to box off that um, uh, just to ensure that the central bank is, is happy with how I'm doing business. But I would suggest that clients, when, when the relationship is framed a certain way, clients are interested and engaged But again, we also take a perspective that we want simple and straightforward as the essence of uh, your investment strategy in the future as well.
1: Excellent. And so uh, we're going to pick up on some of those themes again in in later episodes, but particularly a bit about the engagement of the clients and and then how that feeds into effective transparency and um, disclosures are for for protecting them. But the last question for this podcast, Bob, Mm -hmm. is uh do you find clients come in with preconceived ideas or notions about the latest fads? So have you people queuing around the block for crypto bitcoin funds? Are you all over ESG?
0: Um what's the what's the fads? Uh, Well, in the first instance, uh, fads are not entertained in my business just because, like I set up on 21st December 2010, just coming out of the Wall Street crash uh, at that time. And it's etched in my mind as to what what people were doing um, in the run up to the financial uh, crash that time. So we don't facilitate fads. We don't, we don't. You're no fun, Bob. You're no fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah absolutely so given the fact that a lot of our clients are referrals from existing clients the expectation's already been set but every now and again like i have one long-term client he runs a big business he's not a 50-ish woman but his, his wife is but this guy is always chomping at the bit uh, last year he brought in a guy to me who um Uh, has a gold mine, not a word of a lie, a gold mine in Australia, wondering if he should invest in that. And every single time I have to pull on the reins and say, look, we're not doing this, we're not doing it. If it doesn't fit into global diversification uh, and, and if we can't see where your money is sitting and if we can't get your money back at short notice, not interested in facilitating it. So I oftentimes deal with some clients who maybe I'm going to be cheeky enough to say lose the run of themselves, get blinded by the marketing material that they get from whatever company in question. And I oftentimes have to bring them back to basics saying it does not fit in with the investment philosophy you've signed up to. It does not fit in with your overall uh, uh, investment portfolio and it is not uh, helping us move a step closer to fulfilling your stated goals and objectives. So, when it's put back on the client like that, the fads tend to uh, tend to uh, wither on a rock. Thankfully, but um, the vast majority of my clients that I'm in regular contact with know that they can oftentimes float a proposition to me, but they know what the the, the pillars of the investment advice are here, and it's very uh, it's very easy to either rule it in or quickly rule it out, as the case might be.
1: So, no Australian gold mines there, Bob.
0: Not in 2020, at least. No. <laughs> uh,
1: I tell you, no fun. I saw this the show on the Reddit channel. They seem to be a great idea. These Australian gold mines.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay. Um. By all means, if if anyone who's not a client of mine would like to invest in Australian gold mines, knock yourself out. Have a lot of fun. I would suggest, though, you know, go back to the fun part. It is important to actually um, to to actually be engaged with your your money. And I would suggest that people could perhaps set aside some of their net worth to do something a bit silly, a little bit risque, if you like. And let's call it play dough. money you get to play with. And if you lose it, you lose it. What What about But What I don't want people to do is sacrifice their entire, entire retirement fund on a gold mine in Australia, for instance. Take 10 grand and go crazy or whatever, but hands off that pot of money that you need to provide you with an income when you're old and grey.
1: Thank you very much, Bob. We'll All right, sure, Danny. So that's yeah. it for the next episode. Thanks very much, Bob, for joining us on the Equest Podcast. We're we'll going to wrap it up there. We'll catch you next time on the Equest Podcast.
0: You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquest.ie. For more resources on RECs, funds and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler R-U-R-Q.